The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's direct U.S. responsibility for the events that led to Lumumba's death. The CIA was financing anti-Lumumba protests in the street. It was encouraging the president of Congo to to get rid of Lumumba. It was very much acting to topple this man. Why were they so scared of him? He had made the ultimately foolish decision to reach out to the Soviets for help. And in the Cold War context, this was deemed utterly unacceptable and Congo would be a domino that would fall and turn all of Central Africa red. And and that was the fear. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 18th, 2023. Stories of armies, governments, agencies, and institutions have a way of obscuring the humans behind them, writes Stuart Reed, an executive editor of Foreign Affairs, in his new book, The Lumumba Plot. Indeed, his protagonist, Patrice Lumumba, lays claim to one of history's most contested legacies. In January 1961, just months after taking office as the first Prime Minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Lumumba was killed in an assassination plot that remained shrouded in mystery for years. As his daughter Juliana once said, he passed by like a meteor. Amid this mystery and contestation, Stuart sets himself to the task of finding the real Lumumba. As Stuart writes, this book seeks to exhume Lumumba, to scrape away the mounds of lies, mythology, and conspiracy that have accumulated around him over the decades. I sat down with Stuart to discuss his new book. We talked about the charismatic Congolese leader, of course, and the other colorful and consequential characters that fill Stuart's pages. We also talked about the CIA's complicity in Lumumba's assassination and the neo-colonial and Cold War attitudes that led U.S. leaders to view such a tragic foreign policy misstep as an unimpeachable success. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 18th. The Lumumba Plot with Stuart Reed. So, Stuart, your book is, among many things, it's, it's a mosaic of really rich portraits. There's uh, a stolid and thoughtful UN Secretary General. There's a, a young, brash CIA station chief. There's an almost Shakespearean future dictator. I think many people can probably guess who that is <laughs> in that telling. Um, but of course, one, one person, one portrait looms the largest, I think rightfully so, being the book's protagonist. So before we go any further, could you just introduce us to Patrice Lumumba? the protagonist of our story. Sure. So Patrice Lumumba was the first post-independence leader of the Congo, the country now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And he had come of age as a anti-colonial activist against the Belgian colonizers. And then in May of 1960, he, in parliamentary elections, he did 
better than anyone else and therefore was made prime minister of the new country when it became independent in June 1960. And, you know, he was a fascinating character. He's uh, in some circles on the left, he's held up as this flawless symbol of African nationalism um, among the right, especially at the time of the events described, he was seen as this erratic, unstable leader who was bent on moving his country towards the Soviet orbit. And in January 1961, he was assassinated. So my book is about you know, his, his rise and fall, basically. Yeah, and I want to start with his rise, especially. I think that you really build out this complex character. I was surprised, for example, to learn that early on he was not quite the anti-colonial independence firebrand that I, I may have thought he was. And I, and I shouldn't have been surprised, perhaps, because people are complex and they grow and they change. But can you talk a bit about his, his early life? You describe him as equal parts charm and pluck. Um, there's some really interesting stories about his, his brief stint, I think you could say, uh, as, a, as a beer marketer in the so-called beer wars. Mm -hmm. So what was, what was his early life like? You know, I also want to get into, you know, was this a, a likely path for him to become first independent leader of, of an independent Congo? Yeah, so he was born in Onalua, a small town right in the middle of the Congo. And like many Congolese in the 1940s, he was born in 1925. Uh, like many Congolese in the 1940s, he migrated to a city, which was Stanleyville, now known as Kisangani. And he, he was an autodidact, totally self-taught, extremely smart, a ravenous reader, and he became a postal clerk um, working for the you know, Belgian colonial administration. And as you said, he was not the, the firebrand he later became. And I think two points are important about that. One, he was strategic in displaying what views he could. At that time in the 1950s, there, there was only a certain amount of political discussion that was permitted by the Belgian administration. So he had to couch his opinions carefully and was calling not for immediate independence from Belgium, but for a sort of partnership and incrementally granting Congolese more rights. Um, so part of it was strategic, but also his, his views legitimately changed over the course of the 1950s. And, you know, by 1959, 1960, he became a fierce you know, proponent of an independent Congo, but, but he wasn't always that way. And, you know, so after being a postal clerk for many years, he, he was caught embezzling money from the post office or from accounts that businesses kept at the post office. He was thrown in jail and wrote a, wrote a book manuscript during this time, which included many of those you know, moderate seeming views. And then when he was eventually released, he reinvented himself, as you mentioned, as a promoter of beer in Leopoldville, the capital of the Congo. And that played to his strengths in that he was, you know, extremely charismatic, personable. Um, you know, he would go around town uh, selling beer and, and trying to expand the market share of, of the brewery he worked for. And then, uh, you know, beer sort of merged into politics in Leopoldville at that time. And he, you know, was a founder of a political party, the Congolese National Movement, and, and that eventually, you know, that led to the, the political career we now know. And I want to trace also a bit more of his growing political consciousness, especially 
his position toward the colonial authorities and um, I guess the system of colonialism in general across Africa. And I want to pay particular attention to um, a couple of visits outside of the Belgian Congo he took. One being, I think, earlier on uh, than what you're describing to uh, neighboring French Congo, but then also um, some of these visits that were organized by Belgium, certain Congolese people uh, to the metropole to Belgium. And I know that also uh, Joseph Mobutu, I believe, participated in one of these trips. Um, so could you talk a bit about the significance of, of those in developing more of a, an independence, perhaps anti-colonial mindset? Yeah. So in 1947, I believe, Lumumba goes from Stanleyville to Leopoldville for postal training school, where this is how he begins his career as a postal clerk. And during that trip, he went across the Congo River to Brazzaville, which was the capital of the French Congo. So there were two Congos. Uh, the French Congo was much smaller than the Belgian Congo, but the, the two capitals are right across the river. And what he learned was that the French were running their Congo much differently than the Belgians were. There was less segregation in daily life. And he went to a cafe. He, he was thirsty and he sort of stalked around a cafe asking, uh, you know, wanting to get some water and was shocked that the uh, owner of the establishment, a French woman, invited him to sit down and have a glass, which would never have happened across the river in the Belgian Congo. And, and we know this because uh, a a sociologist from Paris who was doing field research in the Congo eventually befriended Lumumba and and heard this story from him and wrote it down after Lumumba's death. So that was a sort of searing experience. Uh, his first time outside of his own then colony. And then, as you mentioned, in 1956, he's invited to go to Belgium for this tour of the country you know, various Congolese notables were invited, and and that was the first time he had been to Belgium, and you know that widened his view. But then there was another trip which he was actually not on in 1958, but Mobutu was on, and that was where. So the Congolese, excuse me, the Belgians had long had this policy that was referred to as "no elites, no problems." The idea being that if you kept the if you prevented a Congolese political elite from forming, then you wouldn't have any agitation for independence. They sort of shot themselves in the foot in 1958 by inviting various Congolese elite elites to Brussels to sort of put them on display and show what benevolent colonizers they were. This had the ironic effect of, for the first time, bringing together hundreds of politically minded elite Congolese in one place, and they you know, were able to wander around the Brussels and meet with each other. Um, and Mobutu was one of those Congolese who had been selected for that. And so for him, this was also, you know, a moment of expanded contact and, uh, you know, his, his first time in Europe and set the stage for much of what was to come. I think it, it might be safe to say that was one of many episodes of uh, a self-defeating scheme, I think, by uh, you know a colonizer or Western nation, um, probably based on on prejudice. But I, I want to, before we go any further, uh, build out the dramatis personae a little bit. If you could introduce us to some of the other characters in your story, including Dag Hammerschold, if I'm pronouncing his name right, if I ever if I ever will, um, as well as Mobutu and and Larry Devlin, of course, and any others you think might be significant to to introduce to to tell the story. Sure. So 
Dag Hammarskjöld was the Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, and you know it's it's jarring today looking back, but the Secretary General used to be a very important position um, and someone with real diplomatic influence and heft. And it was really Hammarskjöld who invented that version of the job. He was a Swedish bureaucrat who was well respected in international government circles, but not particularly well known. And his selection as secretary general in 1953 was something of a surprise. People hadn't really heard of him, but he turned the position into something that had, you know, actual independent power and as a negotiator and as a, an organization that deployed peacekeepers to places, um, you know, most notably as I write in the book in Congo. And the reason he becomes relevant in the story is that after independence, the country sort of falls apart and Lumumba calls on UN peacekeepers to come uh, help put it back together. And then there's Larry Devlin, who's the CIA station chief in Leopoldville, you know, 37, 38 years old. Uh, the CIA did not expect much to be happening in Congo, and it was telling that it put someone with little experience and so young in charge. He very quickly becomes one of the most important players on the Leopoldville scene and directly involved in helping those who overthrew, who overthrew Lumumba. And then we have Mobutu, who's this you know, fascinating character who, you know, as many listeners will know, eventually became the longtime dictator of the Congo, renamed it Zaire, renamed himself Mobutu Sisi Seiko. But in 1960, he was a young army colonel whom Lumumba had tapped to be in charge of the new Congolese army. And he was, in fact, Lumumba's protege and junior partner, but eventually overtook him, you know, fell out with him, overthrew him, replaced him, and had a hand in his death. So there's also this sort of one of the through lines of my book is this this rise and fall of this friendship between Mobutu and Lumumba. Yeah, that's a really interesting early scene of Lumumba and and then young journalist Mobutu sharing a motorbike or something, uh, surveying a sort of proto-independence riot that had broken out in the Congo. So yeah, there's this interesting, I guess, subplot of, of betrayal throughout, which is which I fa- I found quite illuminating. I, I hadn't known that history before. I want to turn to uh, the book's subtitle, which uh, you subtitled The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination, which I think inevitably leads to questions like, you know, what are you revealing and why was this history a secret? So what is, what is your intervention here? Um, what are you revealing? What's what's the conventional history of Lumumba's assassination? Uh, and then what did you find with your deep archival research, interviews, etc.? Well, so to just quickly summarize what happened to Lumumba. In September of 1960, he was ousted from power by the Congo's president at the time, Joseph Kasavubu. Into that void very quickly stepped Mobutu, who then took charge also in September. And Lumumba was under house arrest, prohibited from you know, moving about and, and exercising power. And, and you know, Still claimed he was prime minister, but was no longer effectively prime minister. And in 
December of 1960, after trying to escape from house arrest, he was caught and then put not back in his house, but in a military camp where you know, Mobutu locked him up and, and prevented him from, from moving. In January 1961, the Kennedy administration is about to come to office and replace the Eisenhower administration. And the Congolese and Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, get nervous that the new president in Washington will, you know, affect some sort of compromise where Lumumba is released from prison and potentially allowed to come back to power. And so Mobutu and his henchmen decide they need to get rid of Lumumba. So they they don't do the bloody work themselves, but they arrange for Lumumba to be sent to Katanga, which was a secessionist province of Congo run by Lumumba's sworn enemies. And they have Lumumba sent there on an airplane on this you know, bloody flight. And hours after landing, Lumumba is shot and killed by Congolese soldiers in Katanga acting under the orders of Belgian officers there. So for years, that was sort of the conventional story and, and blame was put mostly on Belgium. And you know, rightly so, there was a lot of Belgian blame to go around. But what my book tries to do is surface the American role. And there was a key moment where Larry Devlin basically gave a green light to Mobutu and his henchmen to send Lumumba to his death. Devlin knew well that if Lumumba were sent to a province controlled by a sworn enemy, his, his fate there would be death. And Mobutu and Mobutu's fellow, um, the other men running the government at that time, were constantly consulting Devlin on various questions of the day. Devlin was paying them you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. They were very much connected. And when he was informed that the government was about to send Lumumba to his death, Devlin made a key decision, which was that he did not tell his superiors in Washington at the CIA what was going on, even though he had been updating them by cable about many other twists and turns. And he sat on this news and he did not tell Mobutu and Mobutu's allies not to do this. And and this was, as I said, essentially a green light. So there's direct U.S. responsibility for the events that led to Lumumba's death. I mean, in backing up and more broadly, the CIA was financing anti-Lumumba protests in the street. It was encouraging the president of Congo to, to get rid of Lumumba. It was very much acting to topple this man. Why were they so scared of him? He had made the ultimately foolish decision to reach out to the Soviets for help. And in the Cold War context, this was deemed utterly unacceptable and Congo would be a domino that would fall and turn all of Central Africa red. And, and that was the fear. Yeah, I want to stay on that point. Uh, I think, you know, given uh, the CIA's involvement, culpability in Lumumba's assassination, the assumption, of course, then is that Lumumba is a communist or at the very least a fellow traveler. But as you just said, and I think one thing your book illustrates really well, reveals in this secret history is that he was 
nothing of the sort, really. I mean, he, if anything, uh, there was evidence to the contrary that he was more sympathetic to the American side and that, and that he was simply maybe reaching out to the Soviets for political leverage or, or, you know, material support in some way. Could you speak a bit more about that, about evidence against this, I think, still prevailing uh, idea that Lumumba himself was a communist or at least uh, held Soviet sympathies? Sure. So that was one of the things that was most surprising to me. I sort of assumed that Lumumba was, you know, essentially neutral and perhaps, you know, playing footsie with the Soviets. But the more I dug up archival documents and, you know, looked at material from the era, the more I realized that this was a misguided view. He was, if anything, he was pro-American. And let me give you a few pieces of evidence for that. You know, before independence, the Soviets themselves considered him an uncertain ally. They met with him and weren't particularly, you know, didn't think this was a promising pro-communist politician whatsoever. There were others who they deemed uh, were that. He, you know, always spoke about sending Congolese to British and American schools. He rejected the nationalization of private industry. He signed a mining deal to hand over Congolese mineral rights to an American company. And at one point, he even asked for U.S. troops to be sent to the Congo to intervene and, and you know, put down the, the chaos. So none of these are things that someone who is pro-Soviet, even mildly pro-Soviet, would do. So what he did do was, in a, a moment of desperation, ask the Soviet Union for military help. Again, after asking the UN and being frustrated with that, and after asking the United States. If, if you look at his you know, statements repeatedly, he's saying, we don't, I'm not pro-communist or pro-Western. I just need help. I just need, you know, some planes and trucks to help, you know, put down the various secessions and restore order. But in the CIA and the broader U.S. government, they they simply, you know, could not get past uh, his his appeal for military help for the Soviets. That was just, you know, unacceptable to them. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, in in moving the plot along to um, post assassination and the fallout and. Mobutu eventually takes over, changes the, the country's name to Zaire. Uh, and actually, uh, one one piece of history that I was unaware of was his pretty shortly after Lumumba's death, Mobutu's rehabilitation and sort of martyrization of Lumumba, which I want to get to. But I want to talk a bit about, you know, why the CIA's culpability 
was hidden or suppressed for so long. There's one scene that you describe in the epilogue where Larry Devlin, you know, explicitly lays out the CIA's machinations of, of attempting to assassinate Lumumba them, themselves and short of that sort of uh, helping uh, the eventual assassins every step of the way. And he, in fact, fingers the president as as this person who, uh, you know, at the very top who maybe not gave the order, but okayed it. And ultimately, the the staffers who listened to that and who wrote the, the church committee report kind of gave the CIA a pass there, which maybe led to it. So why in your mind, uh, do you think CIA culpability has been hidden for so long? Yeah, well, so I've left out a, a big uh, plot point so far, which is that, as you mentioned, the CIA tried to assassinate Lumumba directly. So Sidney Gottlieb, this you know, uh, very interesting figure, a CIA scientist, was sent to the Congo with vials of poison that Devlin was to inject into Lumumba's food or toothpaste. And this particular plot ended up fizzling out. Devlin couldn't get access to Lumumba's house when he was under house arrest. So there was no way to actually deliver the poisons, but it was not for lack of trying. The, the CIA you know, wanted to do this and actually, you know, it's, it's remarkable today to think about, but, you know, poisons were flown over to the Congo to assassinate the, you know, recently deposed leader of an independent country. That really came to the surface during the church committee hearings um, and investigation, which which looked at this plot that the CIA had advanced and, and looked at other plots. But the, the church committee had a very narrow focus on sort of you know, what happened with this plot. It was not looking at the broader picture of CIA meddling in Congolese politics at the time. It, it sort of glossed over Larry Devlin's role in greenlighting the transfer that led to Lumumba's death. It had this very narrow prosecutorial approach. And I mean, also the church committee was an extremely rushed process. They, they barely had enough time to, to do all these investigations. So I think it, the, the poison plot was sort of a red herring in that, you know, if you look at that directly, it's, oh, this plot was attempted, but then it failed. So therefore the CIA had nothing to do with Lumumba's death. In fact, the, the truth, you know, the CIA did not pull the trigger, but it in the person of Larry Devlin made a key decision that made several key decisions that led to Lumumba's death. So I think, you know, the, the story is not as, as it's a little more complicated and not as simple as the, the poison plot story was. So that, that's what I think has allowed CIA complicity to, to go uh, underreported. Another thing of course, is just the, the classification. So in 2013, a big tranche of cables from the CIA was at long last declassified. And this this allowed people like me to, you know, go through and see the daily cable traffic and exactly what Devlin knew when. And that was sort of the key that allowed this to be unlocked. I want to widen the aperture of our story here to really establish the stakes of your book and, and the stakes of the story you're telling. I think as as you mentioned, you know, un- uncovering the truth about what happened to Lumumba is important in and of itself for for his memory, his family, um, which you actually get into at the end of the book uh, in the epilogue. But there are so many other implications, uh, so many other butterfly effects, if you will, that happened from the assassination for the United States and its foreign policy for the UN and the the post of Secretary General. And then, uh, I mean, I think most significantly for the Congo itself. But uh, in following the CIA's story, 
could you talk about the implications of the Lumumba assassination for the CIA and how it carried out operations throughout the rest of the Cold War and, and generally for U.S. foreign policy? Um, it was hailed, as you mentioned in the book, as a success, um, especially internally in the foreign policy establishment and, and something of a model. Could you speak more about that? Sure. So the church committee looked at various CIA covert operations and the one in the Congo is actually the only one they declared a success, particularly the paramilitary support for Mobutu. And viewed in extremely narrow Cold War terms, it was a success in that, you know, a a leader, Lumumba, who had been seen as potentially pro-Soviet, was removed from the scene and a pliant pro-American dictator was put in his place, Mobutu. In fact, the the damage it did to the country itself, Congo, as as you mentioned, was you know profound. But I think it also inculcated a a an over reliance on covert action within the CIA. And this was you know soon after you had the Bay of Pigs operation in Cuba, and Larry Devlin himself earned at least one award for his his work in the Congo. So there were no lessons learned or rather the lessons that were learned were about um, the success of this type of operation. But if you zoom out and look at a longer term picture, its uh, I don't think it's possible to call it anything but a failure. The Congo itself was, because of the CIA's support for Mobutu, it was pushed into three decades of dictatorship, poverty, repression. And then at the end, it all collapsed in 1996 and 1997, leading to the Congolese civil wars, also known as the Great African War, which killed literally millions of people. And it's not a stretch to trace that event back to what happened in 1960, when the CIA decided to support this military officer, Mobutu, over Lumumba, who had actual political support. So it really... um, I think it all 1960 was really this hinge point in Congolese history. Uh, and if you'll permit me um, to engage in a little, uh, I guess, tempting counterfactual, as you do a little bit in the book, you know, as far as you can guess or divine, you know, we'll never know what what could have been, what could have happened had Lumumba not been assassinated. If you rewind these ripple effects that you just unspooled. Yeah. Well, of course, it's impossible to know. And it's entirely possible, you know, Lumumba would have been ousted in some other coup by someone else uh, had he stayed in power. But as I write in the book, all we know is what did happen. And what did happen was so bad that it's hard to imagine anything worse. And so there's a plausible case that Lumumba became a sort of standard post-independence leader in Africa, you know, somewhat politically leftist, but fundamentally neutral and that the Congo itself, you know, didn't become a Jeffersonian democracy in the heart of Africa, but became a sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill post-colonial state rather than the utter basket case that it became. Um, Lumumba was certainly not perfect. He was a better campaigner than he was a statesman, but he was also put in an impossible situation and, you know, facing many forces that, uh, that were difficult to contend with and some he couldn't even see. I think another surprise for me in reading the book is that the narrative went all the way to last year in a certain way, all the way to 2022. 
Um, and I think this is because it was surprising to me because I think uh, in telling uh, the stories of these high politics of, of Cold War espionage and assassination and, you know, great power conflict, it, it can be easy to lose the fact that Lumumba's death was a crime, you know, one deserving of a criminal investigation uh, and also, you know, a funeral uh, family he left behind. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about Lumumba's tooth uh, and, and the criminal investigation that has you know, been happening for decades? Yeah, so one of my goals was to really humanize Lumumba, and he's become such a symbol over the years that I wanted readers to remember that this was an actual man with family and children and people who cared about him and loved him. And so Lumumba's tooth, when Lumumba was murdered in Katanga in January 1961, the Belgian police officer who was tasked with disposing of Lumumba's body, digging it up from a grave and dissolving it in sulfuric acid, kept souvenirs, these grisly souvenirs from the job he had performed, two teeth and a finger bone. And he then returned to Belgium and kept these up until his death. And his daughter inherited them. And then in 2016, the and people had thought that that these artifacts had disappeared and he the man claimed he had thrown them into the north sea but then in 2016 his daughter gave an interview to a belgian publication in which she admitted that the tooth still existed and actually showed it to the interviewer that kicked off an investigation by the belgian police the federal police which had also been looking into their allegations of various belgians lumumba's family had you know, suggested that certain Belgians had not been held responsible for their actions in 1961. The Belgian government was investigating this. And as evidence, it seized this tooth in 2016, shortly after the daughter gave the interview. After many years of pleading, Lumumba's children succeeded in getting the Belgian government to return the tooth to them, Lumumba's children. And in 2022, it made its triumphant return to the country now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it was given this elaborate casket and it toured the country and was you know, put in a mausoleum in Kinshasa and uh, offered some sense of closure to Lumumba's family who had been waiting decades, um, you know, never having any part of their father's body, never having a clear answer about how exactly he was killed. Um, so for my purposes, it sort of served as a good bookend for the for the book. I open it with the raid on the house in Belgium where the tooth was being kept by the daughter, and I, and I close it with the tooth finally returning to Congo. Yeah, and, and you know, despite it being um, just a tooth, you know, just a, a part of Patrice Lumumba, you close with his daughter Juliana after the casket had finally been interred into the mausoleum, or rather, you know, put to rest in the mausoleum, she said, daddy is home, I think, which I think is an important illustration of the closure that she got when his remains finally came back to the Congo. Uh, and, and I'm reminded of, of, of similar stories that are still very live. Um, for example, German colonial collections still have uh, skeletons of, of East African people in, in museums, in, uh, you know, in vaults, which is, a, I think, a, still a horrific thought, rightfully so, for, for many people. And I think all this is to say, uh, I think one thing your book also makes clear is 
is how much, you know, racism, other prejudices, colonial attitudes played a role in Lumumba's death. And of course, you know, just U.S. foreign policy toward the region in general during the Cold War. Could you speak a bit about that, how those colonial attitudes, racism um, may have also played a role? Yeah. So Lumumba's death was sort of the culmination of a long process of dehumanizing him. President Eisenhower once joked to the British foreign minister that if only Lumumba would fall into a river of crocodiles. And there was this sense that, you know, this black life did not matter. And that made it much easier to view him as disposable. There was also a view that Congo was simply an uncivilized place where violent things happened and sort of different rules applied. And as I poured over, you know, the private cables and correspondence of these, of many of the Belgian and US officials at the time, it's just, there were a lot of uh, racist attitudes evident, um, you know, jokes about cannibalism and just more broadly, the sense that uh, the Congolese were children who, you know, weren't able to run their own politics. And therefore, of course, the United States or Belgium or whoever should be directing their politics and intervening. They were not treating the Congolese as you know, a sovereign people, essentially. Now, you are uh, not only the author of the Lumumba plot, you're also an executive editor at Foreign Affairs. And I think it's fair to say that every good foreign affairs article has some practical policy implications, advocates for certain policies, uh, gives policy options. So I'm curious what practical policy implications you find uh, the Lumumba plot has for U.S. foreign policy today, if there are certain through lines that you've been tracing. I think you you, you mentioned a few uh, earlier on when we talked about the stakes of, the, of telling this story, but how do you think about this story's bearing on today's U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the chief lessons of my book is the the problem with paranoia and that you know groupthink and hyperventilating reactions to foreign events can make enemies loom larger than they really are so at the time the americans thought the soviets were very active in congo and were you know eager to turn the country communist with the opening of the soviet archives it was clear that the soviets viewed congo as this peripheral concern it was, you know, a, a, an episode to be played for whatever political advantage they could get out of it, but not an actual object of true desire. Yet at the time, the Soviets in American eyes seemed uh, intent on, on taking over this country. And so I think one lesson there is, you know, to, to not view your rivals as masterful and utterly competent and uh, scheming to dominate the world. In fact, uh, they're often just trying to get by themselves. Another big lesson, I think, is how to th- how to think about what is now called the global south, what was then the third world. At the time, Washington really thought that countries were choosing sides, and this was this global contest for racking up as many allies as possible. And the Congolese themselves, and I'm sure this is true in many other countries in the third world at the time, were far more interested in their own development and their own political survival and not in playing Cold War politics at all. So the lesson today, I think, is to accept that some countries don't want to join, don't want to pick sides in the, you know, today, the big contest between the United States on one side and 
China, Russia, and others on, on the other side. And, and that's okay that, you know, the way to win a Cold War is not to try and dominate everywhere, dominate as many countries as you can. It's to, you know, be patient and let history take its course and not force countries in, in onto your side because often what results is you'll have, you know, a politics that is not natural to that country. So in Congo, you had Mobutu, is, who, as I mentioned, was just not a representative politician and no political base of his own. And lo and behold, when his rickety regime finally collapsed, the country just descended into into war. So yeah, those are a few of the lessons I'm, I'm thinking about. And as we near the end here, uh, I'm hoping you would permit me a more personal question. This is, if, if I'm not mistaken, your debut book. Uh, so I'd love to hear you know, why this particular project really grabbed you, why you wrote the book, why you embarked on this this journey, and then, you know, coming out the other side, what, what it's meant to you. Yeah. So, you know, it really began in 2014. I had the opportunity to travel to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I was writing an article for Politico magazine about Russ Feingold, an American diplomat. He recently lost his Senate seat and was now the Obama administration's envoy to the Great Lakes region of Africa. And it was a story more about a you know, interesting retirement or post-Senate career of an American senator, not about Congo, but going there just made me utterly fascinated with the country. And the more I started reading up on the history, the more I realized there was this great untold story. I mean, the Congo crisis, as it was known, was front page news of the New York Times in the summer of 1960. Today, people, you know, the average reader knows very little about it. And was overshadowed by later Cold War crises. But at some fundamental level, I was just like, how could I know so little about this thing that was so important at the time? And then the other thing that drew me to this project was the characters themselves. I mean, Dog Hammarskjöld, who died in this mysterious plane crash, Larry Devlin, Devlin, this swashbuckling CIA agent, Mobutu, who transformed from a nervous, skinny colonel into the leopard skin hat wearing dictator we all would come to know. And then, of course, Lumumba himself, who is, um, you know, this larger-than-life character who had been much mythologized over the years. It just, you know, the people were so gripping that I, you know, they allowed me to write the story and just sort of stand back and let them shine. Well, you certainly did, and there was uh, a lot more that we were not able to get to, a lot more contained in the book. Um, the book is called The Lumumba Plot, Stuart Reed, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about it. Thanks for having me. This was fun. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.